Palm is made in compliance with the USDA National Organic Program for use on organic farms. Vermont Beast Bomb is available at Harry's Hardware in Cabot, online at vermontbeebomb.com. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live this morning. We are here in Barrie. We will be spending the next three days at the Vermont Farm Show. Thanks for joining us. And coming up today on the program, we're going to get right down to business. We have a pretty wide variety of topics. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk about that nasty blight that infected many of your potatoes and tomatoes out there. That'll be among the topics we talk about. Uh, later this week, we will be uh, chatting with the uh, uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Roger Albee, who today, in fact, is at the Vermont Beekeepers Association meeting, which is where we begin this morning. And uh, let's give a nice home radio Vermont welcome this morning to Bill Mayers, who's the president of the Vermont Beekeepers Association. I guess he, we could call him the King Bee. And uh, the Queen Bee is uh, Kim Greenwood, both joining us here live at the, uh, at the Barry Odd. Uh, Bill, good morning. Let, let's talk a little bit about the popularity of beekeeping. I know that there are more people that want to uh, make honey these days than ever before. How come? Well, I think the most everyone has heard of the crisis in 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 among bees and the fact that so many are dying off around the world. For, fortunately, in Vermont, we've we've avoided uh, the worst of it. But uh, nonetheless, people are really concerned about uh, keeping bees alive, and that's probably driven. Uh, in large measure, the the increase in beekeepers uh, numbers in the state. We have about 16, 1700 beekeepers in the state, and um, our club has grown 40 percent in the last two years, from around 150 to now almost 300 members. And uh, so I think it's it's partly that people say, here's something we can do about the the bee crisis, and uh, it is a a lifelong um, uh, hobby. I've been doing it for only 37 years, and I, I plan to do it for the rest of my life, and, and um, it's a great hobby. So you say Vermont didn't really get hit by this. Did, how bad was it here in Vermont? Well, I mean, you, the, the state inspector, Steve Paris, says really there's no evidence of these massive die-offs that have occurred in other states. I mean, we, we've got some of the same problems, but we don't have the toxic mix of, of forces. Uh, and we have very few professional beekeepers, and uh, none of them... Uh, tr take their bees long distances to uh, to pollinate crops in other states, which is one of the factors that's affected um, uh, other other beekeepers. How long would it take somebody to be adequate at doing this? <laughs> oh well, thirty thirty. Don't tell me thirty-seven. Right. It's still learning. Uh, well, I I think uh, or thirty-six. You just figured it out a year ago. Yeah, uh, thirty-six. Well, I I. You know, I think that one of the things we preach in the in the Vermont Beekeeper Association is to learn with someone else to start your first year with a mentor, and because then you really can get a feel for for one person's perspective. Because you know, in a way, beekeepers are like lawyers: six beekeepers and seven opinions. And so, you don't want to spend your first year in asking different people and getting so confused by the answers. But if you follow one person's uh, guidance over a year or two. Uh, you can be, you can have honey. Uh, you maybe you could even have honey the first year, but you could certainly get produce honey in the second year. I know you got to run here, but what's happening at your beekeeper association meeting today? Well, we have this one of our two annual meetings. We have one in the summer, one in the in the fall, and 
We're having a discussion about bear damage because that's been a big problem. We're having a discussion about uh, um, um, one of the the pathogens that's affecting bees called uh, Nosema apis and Nosema serrana. And then we're having the state inspector from Maine is coming over to talk about uh, wintering bees. Um, and then there's usually, I mean, it's just a, it's a good social time for beekeepers to come and share their, their production. We had, most people had a terrible year last year because of the rain. I was down 70%. Uh, so we're all hoping that if there's going to be rain, it's going to be like yesterday and not going to come in June, which is when our honey flow is. And is this collapse syndrome stopped across the country, or is it still ongoing? It's still ongoing, and uh, the globalization of pests continues so that every year there's something new that comes to hit on a, a bee, which is has a depressed immune system anyway. So the bees haven't really been able to recover the health that they had, say, 30 years ago. So it's like you know being in the fourth or fifth round with Muhammad Ali. I mean, you can get out of the out of the your your chair, but you're each time you're a little bit more beaten down. And you float like a butterfly and uh, <laughs> sting like a bee. Thank you, Bill Mares. All right, thanks for coming by. Uh, Bill Mares is the uh, president of the Vermont Beekeepers Association. Uh, Kim Greenwood, have, has anybody ever referred to you in your life before as the queen bee? My husband, daily. Oh, is that right? Okay, all right. So uh, are, do, you do, do you do this? I do. I've been keeping bees about 10 years now. What, what got you started? I can barely remember. I think it was just an idea that got into my head with someone I was dating at the time, and we gave it. A Not time. your husband. Not my husband. No. Um, though we did keep bees together for a while after we split up, which was interesting. Um, oh, that. Now there's a there's a novel custody. <laughs> How did that work out? It actually worked out really well. It, it was fine. It got to be a timing issue, so he ended up buying out my share of the hives. Okay, and you got all the all the honey from the year before. Yeah, we worked it out. We okay, all right. So <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Let me see. Maybe we can move on to a different topic here. What? Why do you enjoy doing this? It, it, I mean, for me, this would be uh, like playing with snakes all day. Yeah, you either have one of two reactions. You either say, there is no way I would ever keep bees, or you get into it and you get completely obsessed. And I guess I fall into the latter category. It's one of those things that you can really spend a lifetime learning about. It's one of the most studied insects in the world, and you can read and learn as much about it as you have the capacity. How many bees do you have? Um, probably about... Or is that too personal a question? <laughs> well, we, we estimate forty to 60,000 bees per hive, and right now we have six hives. You have got to be kidding me. So you have a quarter of a million bees? Approximately. I haven't counted recently, but... And what are they doing, say, today? In the winter, they form a tight cluster, kind of like a ball, and they, they have a fascinating routine in the winter where they keep the hive quite warm, around 80 to 90 degrees in some estimates, or lower, in the, inside the cluster. And then when the bees on the outside get cold, they move towards the center, and they keep the cluster warm by vibrating the muscles that they use to fly so the muscles underneath their wings and that's how they keep this cluster warm and they just stay balled up and eat throughout the winter and then they move the cluster very gradually through the hive to where the honey is and by they start at the bottom of the hive in the fall and by the spring they work their way up so that's one of the ways that we tell how they're doing with their food wow that i mean that's just that's that's remarkable so then what happens in the spring Usually in Vermont, we end up having to feed them in some way to supplement their food. So we do that either with leftover honey or with sugar water or some kind of sugar concoction that we make up. And then 
probably around March or April, the queen starts really gearing up and laying eggs. So she starts to lay more, and the hive gets bigger and bigger, and that cluster, as it gets warmer, expands out. So the queen starts to lay more and more. And so when the pollen hits, when those first breaks of pollen hit on the trees, the bees are ready to go. And on the first warm day, when it gets above 58-ish degrees, they're out flying collecting pollen. And that pollen is their protein source, and the nectar is their carbohydrate source. So as soon as they can get out there, they're going out to collect food. And, and how, how much honey do you produce in a year? Uh, the Vermont average is around 60 pounds per hive per year. And we, we average between probably 50 and 70 to 80. And we're pretty high up in elevation up on Camel's Hump. So that's a lot of honey. One of those bears, the honey bears that most people are familiar with, is generally half a pound. So you picture 120 of those. Speaking of bears, are you having the problem Bill talked about with bears? I think every beekeeper in Vermont should be worried about bears because um, one of the beekeepers that I work with in Waitsfield says if you're, if you're not going to put bear fence or bear proofing around your hive, don't even bother having bees because there's such an issue in Vermont. So as Bill mentioned, we'll be spending some time this afternoon talking about that. And is it a problem that's a lot worse? I don't think, I think it's something beekeepers over time have dealt with forever. And so, you know, there's different ways to cope with it. Um, we put an electric fence up. My dad, of course, compliments of him, gave us the fencer for the operation. And so, you know, that seems to work with us. And there's a lot of bears up around us. Other people use bear boards where they put plywood boards down and they put sheetrock screws up through them. So when the bear steps on them, they pull their paw back and withdraw from the hive. So depending on your perspective, people use different methods. Yeah, either you give them a little shot of electricity or you poke them in the foot, you yeah, know, one way, yeah. one way or the other. Uh, Kim Greenwood is one of the... Uh, 1,600, is that what Bill said? People that are here in Vermont who are making honey um, on a yearly basis. Yeah, that's it's, uh, a little, yeah, that's about right, 1,600. And it really is growing tremendously. We've had a lot of interest and a, really a ton of new beekeepers getting interested in this, which is pretty exciting. Now, can you, how, how much work is this on a yearly basis? Uh, is this something you have, need to deal with every day? Can you go on vacations? Yeah, it's, it's probably the kindest of uh, domesticated animals in terms of care and, and timing. You probably spend in the summer, you know, you check your hive once a week, once every couple weeks, and that takes anywhere from half an hour to maybe an hour tops. And then in the fall, that probably is the most labor-intensive, and that's when you're extracting the honey out of the hive. So you're pulling the honey, the extra honey, off the hives, and then you're extracting it for your use. And that's probably... Yeah, that probably takes a day, depending on your extracting setup. I, I asked Bill and uh, how long it would take somebody to become adequate at this, and actually you both sort of chuckled at this. So how long did you feel it took you to the point where you were comfortable doing this, and did you follow his advice and have a mentor? I didn't have a mentor, and I wish that I had. I had a partner in crime, but we were kind of stumbling in the dark. Having a mentor, I think, is really key. and. I've been at this, as I said, almost 10 years, and every year I think I know less and less, even though I've spent the whole winter reading bee books. And it's one of those, I always think of the golf uh, euphemism that people say, it takes a minute to learn and a lifetime to master. It's a little bit longer to learn for beekeeping, but the more you learn, the more questions you have. Why is it, I mean, I know I understand the golf analogy, but why is it so difficult? I think from my understanding, some of the, the people who've been keeping bees for a really long time so that you used to be able to get bees and just keep them in the hive and then you know check them once in the summer and pull your honey up in the fall now they're under so many pressures with different 
parasites, there's um, varroa mites and tracheal mites and different diseases and all kinds of things that you really need to be on the lookout for to catch early because it can decimate a hive. Have you had any of this collapse syndrome problem? I haven't. We haven't seen it in Vermont, so we've been pretty fortunate here. And have you had any of these other disease-type things happen? The varroa mites is something that um, the state inspector, Seafree, sees in probably 90% of the hives that he goes into. So it's something that it's really interesting in terms of genetics that a lot of beekeepers, myself included, are trying to work, instead of putting chemicals into our hives, we're trying to work with the genetics of the hive to replicate and, and continue and breed, if you will, those hives that are developing a resistance to it naturally instead of trying to put something in to kill the mites. So it's a really another fascinating um, area of beekeeping in Vermont. We have some of the top experts in the country doing this kind of work um, in Vermont here. And, and what do you do with your honey? Um, well, my husband's in marketing, so he mostly sells it, and we eat a lot of it. So, but usually he sells our honey out within a week. Whatever we can produce is gone right away. And you just do that right out of your house, or do you do it at a farmer's market? or um, Just word of mouth, different people that have tasted it over the years. Honey really sells itself. And if you taste a local honey versus something you buy in the supermarket, it's like a lot of things. In the supermarket, they take a bunch of honeys from different places and they mix it together to get a consistent taste, but not necessarily a varied and flavorful taste. When you taste a local honey, you're really tasting a lot of interesting flavors and nuances that you don't get when you're buying a supermarket honey. And did you have the problem that Bill was talking about he had with all the rain last year that he was down, he said 70%? We did, we had about 50% less honey this year than we usually do and we ended up taking two of our hives were basically starving we got into the hive and they were empty because the, um, the bees store up honey and they use it to eat in the winter well because it was so rainy they had to eat the honey that they had their nectar that they had collected so they didn't have anything to eat so we actually moved a couple beehives onto the roof at my office in downtown Montpelier and they they just took off they really did well there and you got a, an act 250 permit for that we did yeah yeah okay. good uh, you mentioned, too, your uh, father, who you got the fencing from. Your father's actually had one of the uh, longest-standing booths here at the at the farm show. What's the deal there? Yeah, he has. Um, my family runs Elderby Greenwood and Sons. My dad is a son, and my grandfather started coming here, uh, I think it was the second year of the farm show. My dad and my uncle have been coming back ever since, and we used to come here with kids with them every year. Uh, there was always a snow day the day before the farm show started, so we would always tag along and help him set up. So this is a big, big part of our family. And is he all right with the beekeeping thing you're doing? He's he's taken quite an interest in it. We actually set a hive up at his house so uh, he can keep an eye on things. And he sends us daily reports on how the bees are doing. I'd imagine you probably have a website. Where do people get info on this? There's a lot of information on the Vermont Beekeepers Association website. And that website is www.vtbeekeepers.org. Thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark. Kim Greenwood's with the Vermont Beekeepers Association. We'll take a quick break. Coming up next, we're going to talk about that, that nasty blight that happened this summer that affected many people's tomato crops and potato crops, too. We're broadcasting live today from the uh, Vermont Farm Show. We're here in Barrie. A moment of your time for our friends at uh, Green Mountain Access. We would really encourage you to call them if you're looking for a great hometown company to get your uh, Internet service from. Please call them today, and you can reach them at one 321 or on the web at gmavt.net. We'll uh, be back broadcasting live this morning from the Vermont Farm Show. We'll be back in a moment.
NewEnglandLandmarkRealty.com. Our team of local professionals is committed to exceeding our clients' expectations with uncompromising honesty and integrity. We focus all of our energy and marketing tools to realize our clients' goals and dreams. Hello, this is Cindy Lyons, owner of New England Landmark Realty. 30 years of combined local real estate sales experience, innovative marketing tools, and a strong desire to see our clients succeed make us the most effective home selling team in this market. New England Landmark Realty. See for yourself how we are the smart choice. And now a message from Town & Country Honda. If you're wondering where to buy your next new or pre-owned vehicle, look no further than Town & Country Honda. Everyone knows that Honda sets the standards that other car companies strive for. Fuel efficiency, exceptional performance, and high resale value. Town & Country Honda sets its own standards with a knowledgeable, courteous sales staff and one of the highest rated service departments in the country. Right now, American Honda Finance is offering financing as low as 1.9% APR on the Pilot and Odyssey. Looking to lease? Almost all Honda cars, trucks, and vans have special lease rates. And be sure to come in and test drive the new four-wheel drive Accord Cross Tour, taking you where you want to go and back again. There are also special pricing and financing rates on all pre-owned Mazdas, VWs, Subarus, Nissans, and certified pre-owned Hondas. At Town & Country Honda, they set the standards others follow. Town & Country Honda, on the I-89 Access Road off Exit 7, where you don't pay more, you just get more. Are you a Vermont farmer who needs financial assistance to get your planting done? Are you consolidating expenses or expanding your farm operations? Now is the time to contact the experienced farm lenders at the Vermont Agricultural Credit Corporation, part of the Vermont Economic Development Authority. I'm Melanie Scott, and here at VAC, we provide alternative sources of credit to farmers at reasonable rates and terms. Call the Vermont Agricultural Credit Corporation today at 828-5627. Find out how our loan programs can help you. Senator Patrick Leahy is facing a tough choice. There's pressure in Washington to give up the fight to solve global warming. Lobbyists are whispering that it's too hard, that Congress should pass the kind of energy bill we had under George Bush, one that doesn't put a cap on global warming pollution. But this may be the last chance in a generation to solve the climate crisis. We have, for now, enough pro-environment senators of both parties to pass a real limit on global warming pollution. We only need the will to get it done. Scientists tell us we must act now. Senator Leahy, oppose a George Bush-style energy bill. Fight for a real limit on global warming pollution. Fight for a better future for our children and grandchildren. Sponsored by Environmental Defense Action Fund. Okay, we're back broadcasting live this morning. We are here at the Vermont Farm Show. We'll be here for the next couple of days, and uh, people are starting to wander in here. A lot of great exhibits, a lot of uh, great uh, free tasting opportunities for you if you like uh, some great Vermont products. Uh, joining us right now, let's give a nice warm radio Vermont welcome this morning. Tim Schmaltz is uh, with the uh, Agriculture Department, and he deals with uh, state plant. He's the state plant pathologist. If you're, I guess, if you're a plant, he's not the guy that you want to see coming around. Tim, thanks for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. What, what do you do as this, as the plant uh, pathologist? That usually doesn't mean good news. They have me doing a lot of different things. Uh, typically, my day consists of whatever the first phone call that comes across my desk is. Uh, usually, it's a 
well, plant pathology is the study of plant disease, but I deal with everything from plant disease to insect pests to pesticide issues to things as diverse as ginseng certification or even seed inspection. Wow. All right. Ginseng certification. That's correct. In order to sell wild ginseng in the United States or internationally, it has to be certified that it is a certain age and that it was collected between certain periods of time during the year. It's just like open season on deer or trout or anything else. Wow, who knew? That not that wild? All right, one of the things I know you dealt with this year, this, this uh, gosh awful blight that people had on their tomatoes and, and potatoes. When did you first know there was a problem last year? It came to my attention towards the end of June. I would guess June 28th or 29th, something like that. I got a call from the plant pest specialist over in New Hampshire, and he said they'd been seeing late blight in New Hampshire on some of the material, tomatoes for the most part, um, and then it took off from there for us. What was your reaction when you heard that? Well, I probably can't say that on the radio, but it was shock. Uh, it showed up a lot earlier this past summer than it normally does. It's called late blight for a reason. Uh, normally, late blight shows up in late July or early August, and this year it showed up in parts of southern New England and Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, it was showing up as early as mid-May, which is close to three months earlier than we'd expect to see it. So we were all caught a little off guard by it. And we're concerned that we'll see more of it again this summer in 2010. So we want to get the word out to commercial growers and to homeowners how best to deal with late blight when it shows up again. And what is blight? What is it? It's actually, blight is the name of the disease. The disease is caused by a pathogen called Phytophthora infestans, which is a fancy way of saying plant killer, infesting plant killer. Um, but what it is, is a fungal, or close to a fungal pathogen that attacks tomatoes, potatoes, tobacco, petunias, tomatillos, all those plants in the Solanaceae, Solanaceae family. And it causes rapid tissue death and mortality of the plant. Uh, anyone who had tomato plants this summer knows just how quickly this pathogen can do its job. Typically it will, if the weather conditions are right, it'll take anywhere from three to seven days to go from infection of the plant to reproduction and typically plant death. Um, and so it's, it's a fast reproducer and it spreads very, very quickly. You mentioned Pennsylvania. How, how widespread was it? My understanding is that late blight this summer in 2009 was occurring as far north as Prince Edward Island and the Maritimes in Canada, as far south as Georgia, and went as far west as Ohio and Kentucky. Um, it's important to understand, however, that this, this pathogen has been established in the United States for probably 150 years, and so it, it occurs to some degree every year everywhere potatoes or tomatoes are grown around the world um, and it's mostly a weather-driven phenomenon and of course this summer was a great summer to be a, a plant pathogen I like to say so it, late blight had a had a great run on us this year if I'm a fungus I like a lot of rain rain and cool weather uh, especially if you have rain and fog and mist and cool temperatures and no sun and not very much wind and so the leaves and the stems of the plants you attack stay nice and wet and kind of drippy that's what they really really like um, imagine athlete's foot you know wet 
sloppy areas are where it does best. And Great. Locker rooms and, and everything else. Uh, Tim Schmaltz is the state's plant pathologist. If you have any comments or questions, you know you're welcome to join us at the usual phone numbers. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free 1-877-291-8255. So was it just the rain? Was there anything else that was happening last year that really accelerated this? I suspect there were a number of causes that contributed to it. Um, number one was the rain, the crummy weather, cool, wet temperature, cool, wet weather. Number two were was probably the abundance of tomato material out there in the gardens, home gardens. A lot of people were planting tomatoes and potatoes in an effort to economize, given the economy. People were concerned about getting food at a, at a good price. Uh, a lot of people were also interested in growing food in their own gardens to support the Eat Local movement. And the last thing that kind of probably was the straw that broke the camel's back was the introduction or movement of a lot of infected tomato plants um, in interstate trade. There were a lot of plants that showed up in some of the larger stores here in Vermont and across New England that had been exposed to the pathogen and were probably packaged up and delivered in apparently good health. But when they arrived at their final destinations, they were symptomatic and well infected um, so that those three factors combined uh, contributed to the the extent of the outbreak this year so why do you think why are you so worried about this year because the hopefully the weather will be will be wonderful and we'll have dry clear days and nights and we won't have to worry about anything um, what happens though when you have an outbreak of this this level you end up with a lot of infected material out in the field from the previous year and there will be material coming up in this spring that is infected um, the way this plant pathogen survives in new england and most temperate areas is by infecting potatoes um, it overwinters on the tuber itself and when those tubers are planted in the spring or sprout on their own it the infection or the disease also comes with that new growth so what happens is you get a potato plant coming up and it's immediately infected and it re releases spores and that spreads out to the rest of the crop so there are ways of dealing with that uh, the best thing to do if you're growing potatoes is to make sure that you're not using last year's harvested potatoes or things your potatoes you're buying from the store um, use certified seed potato and don't plant potatoes on the same parcel of land on the same the same strips as you planted them last year because if you do have any volunteer potatoes that sprout it's very difficult to tell the volunteer potatoes from the crop potatoes so you want to you want to get those volunteer potatoes dug up as quickly as you can and destroy them but if you can't see them because they're coming up under the the crop potatoes then you miss them and you start the cycle all over again all right we're gonna take a uh, phone call here i'm gonna have you just move right out here i think you'll be able to hear this a little better uh let's go to uh waterbury good morning uh chris how are you hey pretty good mark um good morning tim listen uh i was told there's three ways of resolving the blade issue because um, i have a pretty good potato garden and one, the only issue, that, the only way that I remember uh, getting rid of the blight was to plow the potato field off during the winter and let it freeze in. Uh, is that true? Would that would that solve my problem? 
All right. Let me see what he has to say. Yeah, certainly letting as much of that living tissue that was in the field last summer die. You want to kill as much material as you can. So if you have potatoes, for example, and you can get those exposed to the frost and kill them, that's great because the pathogen won't survive on living tissue. Um, and likewise, if you see late blight infections occurring during the growing season, if you can get that infection source eliminated and destroy the tissue, that's your best way of managing it. There are other ways of doing it as well. We're going to encourage people to avoid overhead watering, for example, if you're growing tomatoes in a garden, so you can reduce the, the level of moisture on the leaf surfaces. And the other thing we're going to encourage people to do is use preventative fungicides. And there are a variety of fungicides that are labeled for late blight control in Vermont, both organic and conventional types. And we want people to be aware of those fungicides and start using them as soon as they plant their tomatoes or their potatoes to prevent the infection from becoming established. Can you, can you, how do you know, can you figure out before it comes up whether or not you've got a problem? I mean, it sounds like there's a pretty small window. There is a small window, and the real, the real trick here is to watch the weather. That's the biggest problem, is the weather. If we have periods of cool wet weather that's when late blight is most likely to become established so be aware of the weather keep an eye out for the long-term forecast Roger Hill does a great job of letting people know what the forecast is going to be like in the next week or two um, assume that you will have problems with late blight and apply those preventative fungicides they have to be on the plant before the infective material lands on the plant there's not much available for curative fungicides for late blight um, it's analogous to a vaccine for a virus it has to be there first uh, the difference being of course that a vaccine is a one-time deal and preventative fungicides have to be reapplied periodically and by having those fungicides on the plant not only will you prevent late blight from becoming established but you'll also control all those other minor well, relatively minor pathogens of tomatoes, uh, septoria blight, early blight, um, the crummy little diseases that wreck your tomatoes towards the end of the season, you can control those too. So even if you don't see late blight, you'll have beautiful tomatoes at the end of the season, and it'll be worth the, worth the effort and the expense. Is this, is this a disease that goes through cycles of, of worseness and, and, not, and betterment? worseness and less worseness yeah it, it does um, and if you look at the historical record you can see periods when late blight was a very serious problem especially in Vermont there are nice archival records that we have available uh, the mid-twenties there were a period of several years in a row where they had horrible problems with late blight and they were still developing some of the more effective prevention methods and developing com well not computer models but models to predict whether late blight was going to be a problem and then in the mid-60s, early 70s, things settled down quite a bit. They developed a number of convent or chemical fungicides, preventative fungicides that were very effective, and those are still available. So there has been a period of relative quiet on the late blight front for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, it pops up in isolated pockets here and there every year, but we've had better weather and much better control at the commercial and large-scale level of this pathogen. So we haven't really seen it. And in my lifetime, late blight hasn't been a real concern for most tomato or potato growers. And what are, what are, what are the other nasty plant uh, problems out there that you're worried about? Um, well, I only got a few minutes, but I'll give you the, the lowdown on 
<clears throat> on the big ones that we're concerned about at the agency, there are a couple of insect pests of hardwoods that you hopefully everybody's heard about. If I'm doing my job, everybody knows about the Asian longhorn beetle and the emerald ash borer. Those are both insect pests that attack hardwood species and are not in Vermont, but they're on our borders. The other one we're concerned about is a bug called hemlock willi adelgid, which is established in the Brattleboro area. Uh, we're very concerned about that moving into the rest of Vermont. It attacks and kills hemlocks, which is an important wildlife and not so much a lumber species, but it's a very important um, ecological species. So we don't want to lose those if we can help it. Uh, I should mention that the areas in Vermont that are infested are currently regulated. They're under quarantine, so we don't want people moving hemlock material out of Wyndham County. Um, if you have any questions about that, you can give us a call at the agency and we can give you the, the rundown on how hemlock material is being regulated in the state. Other plant pests that we're concerned about include um, things like lily leaf beetle, which is a pest of common or of, of, um, of true lilies, not of day lilies. That's something we've seen quite a lot of and has had an impact on the ornamental lily industry in Vermont and in New England. And there are a variety of other other plant pests that are on the horizon that we try to keep an eye on. Um, there are there's a a pest of pines, of hard pines, a wood they call it a wood wasp that's established itself in New York and we're looking for that one in Vermont. Hopefully it doesn't show up. We're lucky that hard pines aren't the resource in Vermont that they are in other parts of the country. But that's one that has the southern yellow pine and the western hard pine folks concerned. So we're doing what we can to keep an eye on that. And then just the day-to-day -day issues, gypsy moth, uh, forest tent caterpillar, the things that we see all the time. Um, and of course, then there are the, the good ones that Termel gets to deal with, like bed bugs and structural pests, termites and carpenter ants. But I stay as far away from that stuff as I can. Thanks for your time this morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Tim Schmaltz is with the Agency of Agriculture. He is the uh, state's plant pathologist dealing uh, with uh, last year's late blight. Uh, a moment of your time for our friends at Jameson Insurance. If you're looking for outstanding insurance and you want to keep it local, the folks at Jameson Insurance are your neighbors. The Jameson family has been running the uh, insurance business. They've been helping Vermonters since the 1860s. Yes, the 1860s. So I think experience, they've got that one nailed. They're an independent agent, which means they can offer you a wider variety of policies and some of the big-name companies out there. Understandably, they want to keep you with their product. But uh, John Jameson is looking for the best deal, looking out for you. Call them today at 496-2080. If you're an individual, they'd be happy to review your policies. If you're a business owner, you could uh, make an appointment. John will come out to your place of business and do the review right there on site, write up a report for you and let you know whether or not you're getting the best possible deal. 434-4142 in Richmond, and you can also reach them in Central Vermont at 496-2080. Call Jamison Insurance today or find them on the web at jamisoninsurance.com. Broadcasting live this morning from the Vermont Farm Show. We're here in Barrie. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll be talking maple coming up next. We'll be doing that in just a moment.
Taking a test drive is an important part of buying a piano, and Frederick Johnson Pianos gives you a chance to take your piano for a ride before you buy with their special rent-to-own program. For just $25 a month, you can test drive your piano for six months. If you decide to buy, they'll credit all of your monthly payments. Now some restrictions and fees apply. See the store for complete details. Frederick Johnson Pianos, White River, 802-295-2674. Attention all Vermont military families. Hi, I'm Dan Keene, owner of Lamoille Valley Ford in Hardwick, Vermont. Whether you're in the National Guard and Reserve or you're active military, all of us at Lamoille Valley Ford are grateful for the sacrifices you and your family make every day on our behalf. That's why in 2004 at Lamoille Valley Ford, we started to provide free scheduled maintenance to all military personnel as a small way of saying thanks. Here's how it works. No matter what brand car you drive or where you bought it, Lamoille Valley Ford will provide you with all of your oil changes and air and fuel filters, tire rotations and state inspections, brake inspections, tire changeovers, and more at no cost to you with absolutely no strings attached. So drive Route 14, 15, or 16 to Lamoille Valley Ford in Hardwick. Again, all of us at Lamoille Valley Ford will never forget your sacrifice and wish everyone in the armed forces a safe return home. For your service, you have our gratitude at Lamoille Valley Ford, we know our military matters. Farming, the Journal of Northeast Agriculture, will display its sister publications at this year's Vermont Farm Show. Stop by the Farming booth and pick up a copy of your favorite MRM magazine. Farming, Growing, Sports Field, Superintendent, Tree Services, or Turf, Landscape, Hardscape, Design, Build. All magazine subscriptions are free to folks involved in the industry. Stop by the booth at the Vermont Farm Show for more information on farming in all MRM magazines and online communities. Visit their website at mooseRiverMedia.com. We Vermonters are proud of our state, and with good reason. Our respect for its natural resources and hard work ethic keep Vermont beautiful and promote growth that is good for the state and for Vermonters. The Vermont Community Loan Fund is a private nonprofit that has helped make that possible, and you can too. Hundreds of folks like you and me, as well as banks, foundations, and corporations, have put their money to work in Vermont by investing in the Vermont Community Loan Fund. 